Jay Gurudev. Welcome to the Vedic Worldview. My name is Tom Knowles. In today's episode, Life Without Fear, Cultivating Personal Invincibility, in this talk I'm going to be addressing the importance of being ready for change, and not only ready for change, but actually ready to embrace change enthusiastically, as opposed to reacting to change with regret or with the attitude of having not expected it. So we'll get on now with change and how to embrace it and to cultivate personal invincibility. I want to just go straight to what it is we're afraid of. Ultimately, all fear is fear of the same one thing. It has to do with the timing of body death. Let me elaborate. You might think that you're afraid of getting your tax return done or not, but actually what you're afraid of is the timing of body death. You might think that you're afraid that you're not going to have a fulfilling relationship, actually what you're afraid of is the timing of your body death. And so what do I mean by that? This idea that time is running out. I only have a certain amount of time during which time to get some stuff off my checklist and get stuff done. And it's just time ticking by. Time until what? Well, there's a certain point at which this body just stops functioning and falls down, or who knows, maybe some meteorite comes hurtling out of the heavens and vaporizes it or something. <laughs> Anything could happen. And I need I, the I who's talking here, we're going to get into that in a moment, this personal sense of what you are, need to have felt as though breathing and eating food and doing all the stuff you do to show up every day made some sense. It was significant. It was not insignificant. That's the worst possibility. And, you know, some things got done in time. So a lot of this is tied into our self-identity, which is, you know, I identify with the physiology. My anatomy is what I am. And so we're going to explode that myth in just a moment. You're not actually a body sitting in a chair. There's something a lot more than that to what you are. The body in the chair simply doesn't explain it. The other thing that is cranked in with this fear having to do with, you know, at what time the body's going to die and how soon will that be, and even if it's a long way away and we're pretty convinced of that, although we don't actually know, that what is the quality that's going to happen between now and then? So if I'm living until this time tomorrow, What's the quality of the experiences I'm going to be having? And all of these issues regarding basically the flow of time, the limits of time, and the quality of experience play back into what are you actually? Who's this I who's doing all this talking and this internal dialogue or making all these subtle assumptions? What is that? This, who's having these thoughts? What, what is this thing having thoughts? What is this? So let's start off with a process of elimination 
and be very certain of one thing. Though you have a body, you're not able to be explained by a body. And this is a very simple little exercise we can go through. I go through this regularly. If you want to hear it again, when you come back to the refresher sessions, you'll hear me saying this in a more kind of beginner's way. But your body can't possibly be you, since there is not one cell in your body that is here today that was here more than eight years ago. We used to think that you know, there would be a lot of people who were relatively better informed than average laymen who would say, oh, but hang on, what about the brain? Those cells don't regenerate. Well, that's old hat, by the way. We now know that the brain cells do regenerate. They replace themselves. So your skeleton, we'll start with that. The bones that are holding up the frame have been replaced cell by cell over the last eight years. And the various bits of tissue, squishy or less squishy, that sit on top of that, muscles and fascia and skin and all that, are much younger. Skin changes over once every 30 days or so. Just think of the moon. Every time the moon's gone round, you've got a new body of skin. The epidermis. Where's the old skin? Well, you left a trail. Unlike the snake who managed to get rid of its skin all in one go, you kind of left a, a trail of crumbs of skin behind you everywhere you went. And the house dust mites are feasting on it. Kind of a yucky thought, but that's, that's where that skin was. You go in for an exfoliation, you can get rid of it all in one, one afternoon and have next month's skin up there bright and fresh and shiny. So you're not the skin, you're not the fascia that lies under the skin because that changed over in its entirety over the last, say, three years, depending on which part of it we're talking about. You're not the muscles that underlie that. They change over cell by cell once every three to four years. You're not the bones, you're not the bone marrow, you're not the skull, you're not the brain. You can remember what it was like to be 10. I would warrant that. The body that you're sitting in right now, unless you're very young, there are some of you very young in this audience, but unless you're very young, the body you're sitting in right now simply no part of it was here at the time you were 10. So where is this information stored? People will say, what's well, stored in the cells? Yeah, the cells died and got replaced. Where is this information stored about what you are, who you are, and all that? Well, it's consciousness. Consciousness conceives and constructs, governs and becomes a body. Consciousness conceives the body. How do we know that? If we put you in a lab with all kinds of fancy lab equipment and have devices that can extract bits of your body, like blood, saliva, and other sort of measurable fluids, and we look at them under, say, a high-pressure liquid chromatograph, which squashes fluids down to the molecular level so you can do a spectral array and see what molecules are there. If you have a frightened thought right now, then your saliva turns into fear saliva. It's a, got a completely different composition to I'm okay saliva. Tears of happiness are made of a completely different composition to tears of sadness. They don't have the same chemical composition. And we even call them bitter tears, and that's interesting because if you extract the chemical that makes them different when you're weeping and you put a concentrate of that on the tongue, it's in fact bitter. So, you know, I cried bitter tears somebody along the line kind of had very good, acute taste buds. 
and they noticed that tears of sadness tasted different to tears of happiness, and so on and so forth. Your body chemically changes when you're frightened, it chemically changes when you're angry, it chemically changes when you're, when you're sad, when you're manic, and so on. Whatever it was 10 minutes ago, it won't last long because every thought that you have constantly changes the chemical composition of your body. So the body is conceived and constructed by the consciousness. Its chemical makeup is done that way. Its posture, you know, how fast your heart is beating, how much you're sweating, and so on. I feel completely relaxed here. I feel like I'm just talking to one person. That's what I feel like. It's just I'm having a conversation with a person. If I was 19, when I was 19, if I tried to do this, I'd be a complete nervous wreck because I wouldn't have that experience that said this is one person. Now we've got that experience. So then, what's the chemical composition of this body? Well, it's whatever the mind is. The body's trying to print out and be whatever the mind was. If you want to know what yesterday's mind was like in all of the yesterdays, then you look at today's body, because today's body is a history book of the yesterdays, of consciousness of yesterday. If you want to know what tomorrow's body will be like, you look at today's mind, because right now, today's mind is printing out tomorrow's body. It's doing it right now. So what is that body? The body is the consciousness, too. The body is consciousness that lends itself readily to measurement by the relatively crude measurement techniques that we've got. So if we want to measure consciousness, we can do that by measuring the body in a certain way, because the body really is an echo of what the consciousness was. So you're not your body. And somebody might say, you know, well, I hold that consciousness, when it's filled with knowledge, Knowledge means that tested body of information that you had that's based upon two things, direct experience, that's empirical evidence, and a very good theory that explains the evidence and the observations, that's knowledge. Knowledge is not just information. A consciousness that's filled with knowledge is not as frightened. Maybe we could even say knowledge eliminates fear. And somebody might say, yeah, but Knowledge eliminates fear, and then you're going to die. Well, death actually is unreal. You have died. If we're talking about your body, your body's died hundreds of times already, thousands. If you, are, if you think you are a, a big bunch of cells, every one of those cells has died. And they're all in the process of dying right now and getting replaced. And you're conscious, right? You have consciousness. So what's the reality of, quotes, unquote, death? Is it cessation? Apparently not. There is a register of people who've had what I don't think is a very good name for what they've had, near-death experiences. It was started off by an Australian psychologist at the University of Sydney. And it's like an index, a catalog, of the best documented and the known cases of people whose bodies were pronounced dead by a medical practitioner, but who after being pronounced dead, ended up returning to life and continued to experience and talk and, and lead lives, and what their experiences were. And there's a small percentage of them that say, it was nothing. There was nothing there. Small percentage, less than 2%. 98 and more percentage of them say, wow, 
that was real, that was amazing. What was amazing? Well, you had flat brain waves, you know, your heart had stopped, there was zero respiration. Uh, in one case, the world record, by the way, is about 18 minutes. Somebody was pronounced dead and the body was wheeled into a morgue at the hospital. The sheet was pulled over their face. They were being toe-tagged. And then they pulled the sheet off their face and sat up and said to the terrified morgue worker, uh, you know, I need to talk to the doctor. You know, th these are unusual experiences, admittedly. It's not something that any morgue worker is anticipating. Nonetheless, when people have had these experiences, I don't think near death is actually the word for it. It's actually death. Near death is, it only becomes near if you actually somehow manage not to stay dead. If, you don't, if your body doesn't stay dead, then we call it near death. But actually, what is it that's died? What dies if consciousness continues? Consciousness continues. And then, you know, there are a whole lot of scientists who, you know, they refer to themselves as scientists, but in fact, they're not open to accepting any information. I would refer to them as people who are actually cynics who've studied some science. They, you know, refuse to look at evidence in any rational way. Not interested in evidence, they're interested in maintaining a story and defending the ever-repeating known. The constant defense of the ever-repeating known yields bad science. You might know that Copernicus and Galileo and Einstein and everybody who ever said anything revolutionary had death threats. People literally threatened to kill them if they didn't stop saying the stuff they were saying because it kind of, you know, we've got it figured out. And why are you messing it up? These findings. <laughs> you know. Where are we in all of this? Fear. Fear has to do with a mistaken sense of identity. Fear yields another odious thing, which is desperation. Desperation about how much time I've got, desperation about what I am, desperation about am I going to get stuff off the checklist in time. Interesting thing is, you know, maybe you had on your checklist once that you wanted some toys, you got the toys, you can barely even remember it now. Maybe you wanted a bicycle, you got the bicycle, you can barely remember it now. You wanted to kiss Susie Ann at the kindergarten, or Susie Ann, if you are the Susie Ann, you wanted to kiss, you know, little Johnny or whatever. You'd, you had the kiss, you can't even remember it now, but it consumed you for days. All those things that we had on our checklist that got off the checklist are completely not memorable. Funny thing is, people often say, and they're usually kind of people who think that they're into Eastern philosophy, They'll say, we're possessed by our desires. I disagree 100% with that. We are not possessed by our desires. We're not possessed by our possessions either. We're possessed by our non-possessions. The things that we don't yet have possess us. The things that we've already experienced are off the list. We can't even remember them. We don't remember what they were. They're not on the list anymore. So who's doing the desiring? What are you? What's your consciousness say about that? That's going to play into your capacity to get scared. To what extent are you frightened? Well, exactly to the extent that you have a case of mistaken identity. You think you're your body? That's going to make you frightened. It's a frightening prospect. I'm my body. You're not your body. Well, time's running out. No, it's not. Time is not running out. I just have to ask you a simple question. When did it start? 
who says that time's going to end somewhere? How's time running out? Time running out thing, what is that? There's actually only one question that's relevant to this whole fear thing. What are you? I don't care about the who. You know, if I say, who are you, you're going to start telling me about body birth dates. My body birth happened here. The parents of this body, the DNA flow, you're going to start talking to me about who the mother was, who the father was, and countries and things. That's, that's not what. That's the who. So the what really is far more interesting as a question. What are you? What are you? You're not a body. I'm not interested in countries and birth dates and genetic flows and all that because that's body. That's talking of you know, the body of my parents. One parent was German, one parent was Chinese. That's actually talking about the body again. Let's get off the body and get on to the witness of the thoughts. What is the witness of the thoughts? What is that? Who are you in terms of what? What is the most truthful thing that can be said about you? If you can actually come to understand this and have an empirical method for verifying it, just thinking about it alone is not going to do the trick. You've got to have an empirical method for verifying what we're going, where we're going to go. Then fear will begin decreasing at the most astonishing rate. Knowledge eliminates fear means that knowledge basically of what you actually are will eliminate fear. And any other kind of knowledge is just partial knowledge, it's fragments of knowledge. And little bits of knowledge are always dangerous. A little learning is dangerous. So we need to get more knowledgeable and get really into this subject. We practice meditation. And during meditation, its hallmark is a particular thing that can happen from time to time. We settle down. The mind may do some thinking like, you know, this isn't done, that's not done, I've got crazy friends, and I have to make a phone call, or write an email, or return an email, whatever. So we're usually doing a lot of thinking. And our sense of identity is rather consumed by all this thinking about stuff we've got to do and things. You learn to meditate. And at some point in the meditation, it's a valuable practice to the extent that occasionally you stay conscious and thought evaporates. Even if it's only for a second, it doesn't matter for how long it is. Even if it's only for a second, the fact that you can be conscious and thought evaporates is a very revolutionary experience. Why? Typically when we're conscious, we are constantly thinking about things that we could do to get happy. People say, oh, that's not me, Tom. I only think about problems. Well, a problem is a labyrinth that you have to unwind and untie on the other side of which is the promise of happiness. You're thinking about problems, actually you're thinking about happiness. You want to be on the other side of the labyrinthine twists and turns and whatnot. So you're untying a knot so that you can have a frictionless flow. So you're not actually just thinking about problems because, you know, that's what you do. You're thinking about problems because your mind is convinced that if I keep regularly settling in and experiencing the elements of it, I'll get the aha, eureka and it won't be a problem anymore. So that's also the mind wanting happiness. Our mind's nature is always to move to happiness. 
And typically, it will use thought to do this. If I experience this, I'll be happy. I'll go and see that movie. I really want to see that movie. I've heard so much good things about that movie. Oh my god, it was a three-hour movie. And you know, is that really what everybody was talking about? I spent the whole time watching that movie for three hours. And well, you know, it seems to be a cool thing to be able to say you saw that. So I'll make sure that people know I saw it. And then, you know, depending on whether or not I really have the time to challenge their view, I'll might challenge it, but probably I won't. I'll just say, yeah, I saw that. It was great, wasn't it? Add to the mythos of the three-hour movie. But that was three hours of my time. Did I get happy? You thought you were going to be happy on the way. And you know, you got there, and it was OK. Might have been better than watching TV commercials for three hours. But So our idea about, I'm going to get happy. I'll get happy if I solve this. I'll get happy if I do that. Even if I've got a lot of oh no going on, like oh no. The oh no and the repetition of the oh no and all the uh oh and oh no stuff is basically my mind wanting to undo that knot so I've got the frictionless flow again and then I'm free. Free to do what? Free to really get happy. Free to get happy by doing what? I'll acquire a thing and I'll be happy. I'll acquire an experience and I'll be happy. I'll acquire this, I'll get that, I'll do this, I'll do that. Happiness will be here. No matter how much we keep experiencing these things, that lasting fulfillment, that feeling of lasting happiness just doesn't come. I'll get married and I'll be happy. I'll get unmarried and then I'll be happy. I'll stay celibate and be happy. I'll be wild and crazy sexy and I'll be happy. Try anything you want. But then there is an experience where clearly you are happy. And what is that? The mind whose nature is constantly to seek happiness. In that quiet state where you have a moment where everything disappears, there's just being, you're conscious. You're not unconscious. If somebody came next to you during that state in meditation and went, you'd hear that. You'd alert to that. You might even say, why are you snapping your fingers? I'm meditating. My point is that the mind in that state is capable of following its nature toward happiness, but it's not thinking a thing. It's conscious. If you were asleep, that's a different thing. You're not conscious. You're not capable of having a thought. But you are conscious, capable of having a thought, capable of doing the usual mindless ramble. I'll be happy if dot, dot, dot. And all of that seems to have just stopped. And what this shows us is that there is a consciousness state where contentedness is so great that the mind is willingly, it just willingly lets go of the whole tendency to think. Because you can't even conceive of anything that would be better than this. And since there's nothing you can conceive of that would be better than that state of being, the mind simply fails to think a thought. And yet it's conscious and capable. So a mind conscious and capable of thinking and yet not thinking is doing something utterly revolutionarily different. What's it found there? It's found fulfillment is the only way of putting it. It's absolute and utter and complete fulfillment. You have just discovered the thing that you have been looking for all your life, not just the happiness. You've discovered what you are. That's what you are. You are fulfillment. 
That's actually what you are. You're not a body. You're not a little DNA history from two different parents who were in different countries and stuff. You are fulfillment. Your fulfillment and you have a body. When you experience fulfillment, we can measure what your body does. Your body changes its chemistry. You touch on that fulfillment state, your body suddenly is not composed of the same chemicals it was composed of 15 minutes ago. It's now composed of bliss chemistry. And there are certain cocktails that your brain produces that are these bliss chemicals. I won't go into great detail about that today. Just take my word for it for the moment. Assume that it's true. And we'll continue on that assumption. That the body, in every respect, from the top of your head to the tips of your toes, everything measurable in your body has just changed its composition. And what is that composition? It's the composition of the fulfillment consciousness and the body's just printed it out. Someone who's just experienced their truth, fulfillment is your truth, has now got the body of bliss. And it doesn't last forever. It wears off after a while because, you know, that was that. And then suddenly the world out here starts to convince you that you're something other than that. So you go back there again in the evening and you experience it again and reinstate it. And then you come out and the world convinces you that you're all this other stuff, the deadlines and all of that. And then you go back there the next morning and reinstate it. And you keep reinstating that again and again and again and again. And there comes a time when fulfillment is your reality. Then you are fulfillment who is processing desires and the character of the desires becomes completely different. I'm not having a desire in order to get fulfilled. I'm having a desire in order to export fulfillment to where it is not. I've demonstrated to myself that fulfillment is not out there. If you wanted to see the movie, you saw the movie. There was a wave, but it's gone. A little wave of happiness. You know, you wanted to eat the perfectly ripe peach that came from the organic farm. You ate it and you forgot about it in an hour. Wave of happiness. You know, you wanted to kiss the perfect person. You've been wanting to kiss them for 20 years. You kissed them. Now what? That was great. That was pretty cool. But what's, what's next? That kind of what's next thing just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back. And then what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? I'm in a big hurry because the body's going to die. And I'm the body. That's that outer conviction. Fulfillment's out there. I've got to keep adding things, adding things, and I'll find it, I'll find it, I'll find I'll finally get to the place where you have a happiness experience and you're just in absolute beatific happiness forever because you've got the perfect peach. And the flavor of it just is nectar for the rest of your life and you can't remember the IRS or anybody else. You're just in peach consciousness forever. That's not going to happen out there and you've discovered that. You've been there lots of times out there and you keep going in here in meditation, yes, it seems to be so. It seems to be so. What is so? It seems to be that fulfillment is, in fact, my baseline nature. And if fulfillment's my baseline nature, then to the extent that I've experienced that as my truth, I'm actually in the exporting business now. I'm exporting fulfillment to the world. I'm not in the importing business anymore trying to get something and put it in here to make in here happy, which didn't work. The exporting business, I am fulfillment. 
I am fulfillment, and I'm exporting it through every thought, every action, every behavior, every feeling, every desire. I'm exporting fulfillment to the world. My projects are projects where I add my fulfillment to them and share it. I create shared experience of fulfillment. And as meditators, this is a very good way of analyzing the way in which your life changes when you meditate. You start to become someone who is actually more interested in sharing the inner fulfillment with the outer world than in going out there to acquire the fulfillment and try to bring it in here. And in that process, if you know what you're doing, and if you understand properly what you're doing, you start to get less and less scared. Less and less and less. Now, if somebody's walking around with, this is a prop, it's my hotel door key, but let's pretend it's a credit card. They're walking around with a credit card in their pocket and it's got a giant limit on it. But they're, you know, like suffering and, you know, not eating anything and they see a flower and now somebody else can have flowers but I can't. And I don't have anything and my clothes are getting raggier and raggier and raggier and there's this credit card with your name on it and a giant credit limit. But you kind of forgot that it was there. Maybe it's even an annoyance because when you sit on it, it pokes you a bit and so on. It's a little bothersome, this thing. It's the thing which would make anything happen. All you had to do is say, there's this. And they go, okay, let's get some nice clothes on you. If you have this intrinsic inner experience and you don't understand it properly and you don't understand its power, then even though you have it, it's kind of useless to you unless you know how to use it. How do you use this? You are fulfillment. You don't have to get fulfillment. You are fulfillment. You are fulfillment means you are consciousness that at its baseline has knowledge of its status with the universe. What is its status with the universe? Ocean, wave. A wave looks like a separate thing. Here comes a wave. You know, you're out in a boat or something. There's a wave. And where are you? I'm on the ocean. And what's that thing? That's a wave. Is that the ocean too? Well, kind of, but here it comes. It's a wave. And we get into this idea that waves and ocean are separate things. Waves and ocean cannot be separate. There's no ocean, no wave. And no waves, no evidence of ocean either. And so ocean is one giant contiguous whole body of water in this case, and it has individual expressions. They're curves. When the ocean is symmetric, that's flat, it's all one contiguous whole. When it breaks its symmetry, it curves. That's a wave. But the wave is not non-ocean in any way whatsoever. It's not non-ocean. It is nothing but a localized curve of ocean. That's you. you know, your individual mind and body and all the rest of you, it's an individual curve of an unbounded consciousness field. When you allow that curve to settle in meditation, you experience that moment of oceanhood. And then you come back to wavehood. Then you go back to oceanhood again in another sitting. Back to wavehood when you're doing stuff, running around and things. 
and back to ocean hood again, back to wave hood, and eventually it will begin to dawn on you, even when I am the wave, I am also the ocean. I don't stop being ocean. There must be a technique in here somewhere that we can employ as meditators to remind ourselves of our status, which is not simply wave status. We can't say that you're not the wave. That I am not the individual is not a correct statement. I am the individual, but I am curved totality. I'm a curvature of totality. What does totality mean? Scientists talk about this, the unified field, the one indivisible whole field, which, by the way, any physicist who's at the head of the game will tell you is conscious. This may seem like a you know, weird science fiction thing to some of you, but the fact is the leading scientists in the world today who've never taken any course with me, on their own, looking only at matter and its behaviors, have arrived at the conclusion that all things are actually undulations of one thing. All objects, all forces, all phenomena are actually little waves, if you like, of one underlying thing. And that one underlying thing has a surprising characteristic. It's kind of not surprising anymore because people have been talking about it for 50 years. That one indivisible whole thing that curves itself into things has a characteristic which is undeniable. It's conscious. It's conscious. Then people start going, uh-oh, this isn't science anymore. Let's run out the door. Sounds like religion. Religion manages to sound a little bit like science these days. Although religion, it's got some stuff added to it that science didn't agree to. <laughs> you know, the warnings and things. I warned you. We don't live in a field that is ominous. The unified field is not ominous, and it doesn't warn us. It hasn't got dire consequences in it. It's just conscious. So what's the nature of everything? The nature of everything is that it's one indivisible whole and conscious. What's your nature? You are one indivisible whole and conscious. When you're thinking about yourself and you know zipping around in your little body and stuff, then you're very identified with your wave status. When you've let go of the tendency to think during meditation, you are identified with your ocean status. You keep identifying with these two. Together, eventually, it will occur to you that there's one truth here that never goes away. It's not just that during meditation, I am oceanic. I'm also oceanic outside of meditation. But we may have forgotten this. And consequently, we identify temporarily with all these limitations, like, you know, my body's going to die. I better be frightened or there are deadlines, or you know, stuff's going to happen, or I won't experience these things, or whatever. I've got to get fulfilled. We've forgotten our status. So one of the things I want to do today is remind you of your status. Now, we can practice what I'm going to teach you right here with our eyes open. You don't have to close your eyes. It's good to close your eyes twice a day and reinstate this and have a very solid experience of it. But with eyes open right now, without you ceasing anything, without you having to sit still, without you having to hold your breath, without you having to close your eyes, you can experience right now 
a layer of you that is witnessing the thoughts you're having. There is a layer of you which is the silent place that you got to in meditation and the deepest meditation you ever had to date. That place is a little bit awake in the backdrop. Let's call that the unboundedness. It's sitting there like the back seawall and the waves of thoughts and body sensations and all that are kind of crashing against that seawall and the seawall just doesn't move. It's just sitting there watching all of this watching me wave my hand around, it's making you think the thoughts you're having, the body sensations you may be having, wondering about the question you might like to ask. But there's part of you that's not thinking, it's just consciousness witnessing thoughts. It is not the thoughts, it's the witness of the thoughts, that place. Anytime you start feeling fear, you've assumed that you're something other than that that quiet place that easily you reach anytime you sit down and close your eyes and trigger a little technique. You are actually that place, not just when you meditate. You are that place when you are active with your eyes open, but you forget. And because you forget, and to the extent that you forget, you get scared. So fear comes from a lack of attention or a percentage of lack of attention on what you actually are, which is totality. You are totality with a body. And totality with the body still likes to experience stuff. Totality causes the bodies to be so that totality can experience stuff. It makes the stuff, it makes the experiencer of the stuff, and it puts the stuff and the experiencer of the stuff together <laughs> so that it can experience relativity. Relativity. Because why? It's kind of boring just to be one flat, unmanifest, indivisible, conscious whole. We have this portrayed in the Garden of Eden story. There was God, and he created stuff. And then after a few God days, however long a God day is, seven God days, he rested. And then, you know, this is in Genesis, and then created man in his own image. It's a God-man. This is a God-man. Then he takes some DNA out of God-man from the rib and makes God-woman. Then there's God-man and God-woman and God, and a beautiful garden. And everything's just really dandy. God is omnipresent, it's stated prior to this part of the story that God is omnipresent. Omnipresent doesn't mean quasi-present, doesn't mean kind of everywhere, it means absolutely everywhere. Absolutely everywhere says to God-man and God-woman, I'm going to leave for a while. This is the first sign of God being bored. I'm going to leave for a while. Now, I have to ask you the question, how does omnipresence go someplace. If you're already absolutely everywhere, how do you leave? <laughs> how do you stop being somewhere and start being somewhere else if already you're absolutely everywhere? You're also omniscient, so you know absolutely everything. Nonetheless, you say to God-man and God-woman, this has all been great, hasn't it? I'll be gone for a while. You can do anything you want here in the garden, except <laughs> now, 
I don't know what you're going to do, even though I'm omniscient. And when I'm gone, omnipresence gone, I expect that when I return, that tree will be untouched. That's what I expect, right? I'm omniscient, so I kind of really do know what you're going to be doing, but <laughs> and I can't really go anywhere. But you know, when I come back, if something has happened, we won't even go there. <laughs> and then he comes back from wherever the omnipresence was, and the omniscience that knows everything past, present, and future is surprised. <laughs> what? You did the thing which I told you not to do. OK, now we're going to bifurcate. That means split. And everything goes out. Now, I don't like everything being out if I'm God. So I like to create some kind of way in which it can all come back. Because the coming back is fun, right? Return to grace, the return to grace. This story explains everything when totality is only unmanifest, one indivisible whole and conscious, but has no perturbations in it, boring. So totality bifurcates. It causes part of itself to forget that it is itself, and then creates mechanisms for that part of itself that has forgotten that itself to return to the memory of being self. And that return of the self to the self is experienced as love, the return to grace, all of those lovely things that you can't have when you're just one indivisible and whole. You have to be two in order to have unity. You can't be one and have unity. Unity means two, at least two, unified. Right? That's a whole other course. So how do we? start to relax. The next time you get frightened about something, the moment you start getting that, oh no, or oh dear, or uh-oh, something like that, I'd like you to practice something. This is an opportunity for you to practice. What you practice is this idea. I've got mistaken identity for a moment. I've forgotten what I am. I'm totality. And I'm now going to experience from my totality level. I don't have to close my eyes. I do that when I meditate in the morning and in the evening. That's a formalized practice. This is in between those things. I am going to allow myself to favor the unboundedness. Favor the unboundedness. Favoring the unboundedness, immediately you start to feel better. These relativities that say, stuff's going to happen before you die, and you're probably going to die quick starts to become kind of unreal. Because actually, death is a totally unreal concept. If you're not your body, then death's an unreal concept. And I've just demonstrated that you're not your body. So I'm going to go to the unboundedness and favor that. And favoring the unboundedness is my, where the wave connects with ocean. We can call it a connection. It's actually a little bit illegitimate to say a wave is connected to the ocean where the wave emerges from the ocean. That's that unbounded place that's inside you right now that you can experience right now. You know, you may have a lot of thoughts going on on top. Could be a lot of waves going on up there. But there is that baseline inside you that you've touched on many times when you meditate, and that's it. 
And then, what's the next thing? You have infinite potential, capability. From that baseline source, you have the potential of infinite creativity. You have all the time in the world. You have infinite staying power. You have infinite intelligence. And whatever is going on out here, this is all temporary stuff. But you go on forever. And you forgot that, and that's why you got a little excited and became convinced about death and fear and all of that stuff being legitimate. So this is just a beginning. If you begin regularly to practice that, you begin to look at where are the opportunities for remembering this? I get a little wave of fear. Fantastic. Now I get to practice. Instead of, you know, oh, no, I'm frightened. Oh, no, no, no. Don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. What I'm saying is feel that fear. Find the sensations of it and contrast it with the unboundedness that you are deep inside. Allow it to contrast with that. There's a wave. Okay, there's a wave. Let's contrast it with the ocean, the entire giant fathomless ocean, millions and millions of square miles and then cubic miles if we take in the depth of size compared with wave. I'm the ocean too. I'm also the ocean. I am this body. I am this little bit of history. I'm also the ocean. And I have to remember my ocean status. And what's going to make me remember? something that frightens me. Therefore, I look forward to it. Come on, bring it on. Bring me something. Go ahead, try to scare me. <laughs> I'd like to see what the world can do that can convince me that time's running out and that there are limitations. I am totality. I embrace all of this. Bring it on. And this is where we want to be. This is what invincibility actually means. Invincibility is not about defending the wave with barbed wire. Invincibility is showing the wave that it is ocean. That's invincibility. And when the wave discovers that it is ocean, it can draw upon that oceanic quality and be an even bigger shara of an even bigger experience of fulfillment, and to do that in a way that is sustained and sustainable. This is our program for eliminating fear. Knowledge eliminates fear. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of true nature of self. True nature of self is the knowledge that eliminates fear. It's the ultimate knowledge. It's supreme knowledge in that respect the source of my tradition's knowledge, and this is universal knowledge. You, can, you could hear somebody talking the way I'm talking in the Kalahari Bush tribe if they are particularly well connected to their ancient tradition. Or could be Chinese, or could be Nordic, or could be anything. All cultures had access to this knowledge. My tradition came from India. And in my tradition in India, there is lots of legendary. It's referred to as the Puranas, which is writings of ancient times, the histories. But these histories are not really histories to be taken literally. What they are is fabulous in the literal meaning of that. They're fables. Long, long fables, stories that illustrate, they're illustrative of the play of consciousness. So let's look at one of those. There's a woman 
who is in prison. How she got in prison? Her brother, who was a very cruel man, imprisoned her because he believed that somehow she and her husband were going to undermine him and he had usurped a kingdom. And so he told her and her husband, you'll be in jail forever. He also had received a message from a soothsayer that if she ever gave birth to a male child, that that male child would bring about the king's destruction. He would have just killed her, except she was his sister and it wouldn't look good politically. So he thought that instead of killing her, he'd keep her in jail. And every time she gave birth to a child, he would immediately go personally into the jail, grab the neonate by the ankles, and dash its brains out right before her, making her cry. Sounds like an awful story, a place where there's no unified field. Into all of this comes the birth of one of her children. And she was just thinking to herself, and she was in the jail for 20 years, there must be something that makes this story a better story than where it's going. And meanwhile, this wicked king is living a life that's not relevant socially, garnering to himself all benefits and leaving the people in poverty and, you know, all that kind of scene. We've heard so much of this in the world. How does she find what it is we're talking about? She has an experience of giving birth to a child. Now, we've got to realize that we're using license here. This is a fable to give us some understanding to provide a format for consciousness. And the child, when it's born, is kind of midnight blue, indigo in color. So she uses the Sanskrit word for his name of indigo, which is the word Krishna. And when she sees Krishna, what does see Krishna mean? It means she gave birth to this phenomenon. She began from inside of herself to have this experience of Krishna. What happened was the capacity to deliver into the world something that was going to completely change the consciousness of the times. And so the birth of Krishna is the birth of the experience of transcendence. And what did it come out of? It came out of the desperate demonstration that there's nothing in the relative world that's even worth living for. She transcended. She had a spontaneous transcending experience. We can go on and on and on with these stories from every culture of how desperation brought about the birth of, quotes unquotes, a savior. Who were these saviors? They weren't actually meant to be thought of as people who, you know, save everybody. They were experiences that could be had. You know, you see a similar story with Moses, Moshe in Hebrew, whose mother was so frightened about what would happen to her child when all of the children were being killed by the king. So she floated her baby down the stream, and the baby ended up being raised by the very king who had ordered the deaths of all the children. What a fascinating story. Got you intrigued, hasn't it? All right, and that baby grows up and then starts liberating everybody, and that baby ends up having a connection with the totality, leads all the people to the totality. 
So we can look at the stories in the literal, the denotative, or we can go connotative, which is what all these stories ask of us, actually, is to find this inside of ourselves. The grosser the suffering, the greater the likelihood of the resolve not to attempt to find totality in everyday experience. And then there's the rabbi from Nazareth, very similar motif. The king is having all the male babies killed, and the mother, pregnant with a child, goes off with her husband to an uncertain place and finds a place in amongst a bunch of cows and cow poo and sheep and stuff, and sits down in there and has a baby that ends up speaking words like, I and the Father are one. I am identified with my source. And so everywhere that we see gross human suffering throughout history, we also see realization that the relative world doesn't hold the answers. Now, in a materialistic society like the one in which we currently find ourselves, we are actually at a disadvantage compared to these people. Why? We have it promised to us that if we wear a Calvin Klein, we're going to really experience beatific fulfillment. And we believe it, and we go and buy Calvin Klein by the billions. We have it promised to us that if you drive a particular kind of car, then a girl comes with it. And you and that girl are going to go driving off into the sunset and live beatific fulfillment forever, because she'll never argue with you. In fact, she might not even speak or want anything else. And we believe this stuff. And, you know, we fall for it, holus bolus, like, okay, that'll do for me. I'll acquire and acquire and acquire, and I'll earn more money and keep acquiring stuff, and eventually I'll get beatific fulfillment by acquisition. And there's a certain sense in which we're actually in graver trouble than the people for whom their life is saying to them, there is not going to be any fulfillment in the material world. Babies are going to get killed. People's rights are going to be disregarded. People are going to be jailed and tortured. And the strange thing is, out of those environments, we have some of the greatest stories of enlightenment. So, yes, the unified field, it's all water. It's all water. The planets are all unified field. The forces are all unified field. It's unified field creating a storyline for itself. It's all a storyline. Everything's a storyline. Taken out of context, taken without perspective, when we zero in on the limitations of the story, if we take a snapshot of any one chapter of the fabulous story, that snapshot just looks like abject suffering and misery. But if you keep allowing the story to elaborate sequentially, eventually what you find is that was a pivot point out of which came enlightenment. That's all fine. We just have to get a, a larger time context. Once we get a bigger time context, then we have an epic. And all epics have value to the extent that they display unboundedness coming into the picture. If all a story does is demonstrate suffering, you haven't watched for long enough. Keep watching the story, and it'll start to show you something else, because there's thematic behavior in all stories. All stories are elevational theater. Every story there is is elevational theater. There's the status quo, then there's a fall from the status quo, then there's a rise from that fall, then there's a new status quo, then there's a fall from the status quo, then there's a rise from that fall. You look at anything that's a story that lasts for more than a couple of chapters, 
you're going to start spotting elevational theater at play. Why is it that we like those stories? It's because they are the story. They're our story. They show us that suffering, 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 all fall into really deep suffering, and then there's a rise. And then suffering, 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 you know, of a different kind, a fall, and then there's another rise like that. And it keeps rising and rising and rising. Now, eventually, when you can see all of these stories showing the same pattern, fear begins to disappear. Because the fact is, fear is partly a result of the idea that time's running out, or time has run out. And it hasn't, and it doesn't, actually. From the Vedic worldview, which is the worldview that I espouse, that worldview that comes from the ancient Indian tradition that this knowledge came from, God basically is the ocean in our analogy, the oceanic. Individuality is the waves on the ocean, so we're a little like localized gods. You know, God created man in his own image. That kind of thing means ocean bent itself into a localized curve. And then love is when the localized curve returns to its oceanic thing, there's greater unity, greater unity, greater love, greater love, greater love, greater love, absolute love. And what is absolute love? Absolute love is expressed in I and my source are actually the same thing. I'm devoted to my source. The wave, as it's spreading out and spreading out and becoming one with ocean, which is always, it was always one with ocean, it's realizing its oneness with ocean, more and more and more realizing, more and more realizing. There's going to come a point where the realization is there that could it be so? This magnificent thing, which is my source, is actually me? Could it be so? And then you have, you know, the Nazarene rabbi saying, I and the Father are one, and people go, you can't say that, we're going to kill you for that. You know, I and the source are one. This is the realization of the wave. That's the ultimate love, is oneness. Because if I really love you, I love you, love you, love you, love you, I just love you so much, I don't even want to love you, I want to be you. I want to be you. I am you. Your thoughts are my thoughts. Your desires are my desires. Your rights are my rights. Anyone who upsets you upsets me. You see, I want to be you, right? Ultimate love. Love God, I love God, I love God, I love God. God's going to stop being God at some point. Wave and ocean have to merge. They have to discover their, their oneness. Otherwise, we have that constant separation, you know, where we, we break the omnipresence and say, well, the omnipresence is kind of omnipresent. It's omnipresent everywhere except in me. It's omnipresent everywhere except in humans. The omnipresence doesn't really like the humans. It kind of likes them, but it made a mistake making them. And they had a chance, but they messed it up. And now they're all going to get burned up and everything. So the omnipresence kind of mad at everybody. And the omnipresence offers a loophole, but nobody takes it. And so only a few of them are going to be able to. That's, I mean, we should improve on this. It hasn't got us very far. It's not so much fear bring it on. It's challenges to what I am bring it on. If I'm the ocean, and there's some little river bringing mud, but I'm the giant Pacific Ocean. If I'm a little pond and there's mud coming in from a river, watch out, I'm a pond, I'm about to get muddy. But if I am the ocean, and there's a river bringing mud, I'm, you know, 14 million cubic miles of big blue, and there's a little localized little thing here with some silt in it. Come on. 
So I can say come on if I know what I am. But if I stay small and I say come on, it's just bravado. So, you know, come on, I'll take you on. I'm a drop and you're a river. That's not what says come on. Come on is ocean talk. There, there are two parts of this. One is realization of that oceanic status, which comes from regular meditation. You keep experiencing that with your eyes closed over and over and over again. But there's a second part to it, which I'm really emphasizing today, to cease ignoring what you've realized. Let go of the habit of ignoring it. If you let go of the habit of ignoring it, then you've really got it. The credit card's in the pocket, stop ignoring it. Let it do what it can do for you. That knowledge of that oceanic thing, we allow our awareness to favor that inner experience of unboundedness, witnessing the thoughts, that's what I am. I forgot what I was, I forgot what I am. I can start getting into all this localized behavior. Uh-oh, oh no, that whole stuff. The fight and flight. I'll fight the demands, see if I can kill them and make them go away, or I'll run from them and hide. But one thing's for sure, I cannot interact with them. And so I'm terrified. The fact is, you can interact with anything. Your totality. That's the fact. Now, you forgot about that, just settle down into that simplest form of awareness while you are in your eyes open state. Maybe you're driving your car and the 405 is jammed with traffic. Suppose it's bumper to bumper and it's looking like a parking lot. You'll get the little oh no or uh oh and then what I'm telling you to do is don't stop driving, don't pull over. You'll meditate later on today you know, and again tomorrow morning and again the next afternoon and so on. Right now employ what meditation brought to you favor your unboundedness. You have all the time in the world, actually. You have all the time in the world, actually. Why? You are totality. You are that unboundedness that you're feeling underneath all those thoughts. Be one with that, favor that, and watch what happens. You'll suddenly be kind of, feel kind of good. Oh, when I was doing 75 miles an hour, it was a bit stressful. Now I get to listen to some music. Or, you know, look around here and, you know, this is, I never knew that place was there before. I've driven by here a thousand times, Skirball Center, I saw that sign. I always wondered what that was. Lived in Los Angeles 50 years, never went in there. Maybe I'll go in there sometime, see what's happening. So, you know, you start taking in information. You start getting bright ideas. You start having creative impulses because you have let go of the mistaken identity. I'm a little body in a car with a timeline, and stuff's going to happen if I don't arrive off the 405 on time. That's not your identity. It's that false identity that's making you frightened. Step out of that false identity. Be your unboundedness. With regular meditation, we come to expect that there'll be behavior toward us, which will be higher behavior. But sometimes people don't seem to be hip to that program. So they may, you know, come to us with behaviors that are somewhat less than helpful to that view. And our attitude must be, you are not auditioning to anyone. 
the world is auditioning to you. You're auditioning them. Even if you're going in for an audition, my advice to you is, if it's an actual audition, you're auditioning whoever is supposedly auditioning you. If you are connected with your unboundedness, you allow that unboundedness to be your most defining characteristic. This is my most defining characteristic. Now let me see how you do. What is that regal nature inside that I am? It is cognizant that all I'm ever really going to get is a report on the state of consciousness of the reporter. That's all I'm getting. That's all you ever get. All reports are reports on the state of consciousness of the reporter. No one actually can report on you. They're reporting on their experience. They're reporting on themselves. And so we're happy to receive these reports. We're very happy to receive them. And then the only question is, what is the next thing to do? Oh, somebody reported a low consciousness state? Then my role here is to show them by precept, which means example, to become a preceptor and demonstrate better behavior. And under what context can I do this? Under a variety of contexts. If you ever want to see some great examples of this, although it's only a movie, watch the movie of Dickie Attenborough called Gandhi, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture way back in 1980 or something. It depicts Gandhi being jailed. There he was doing something that was the higher consciousness phenomenon, and he's taken off to the jail. And he's smiling at his jailers, and saying, and they're saying, you know, you're going to jail now. He was like, I, I can't wait. Because, you know, in jail, when I'm in jail, my cause gets publicized. I thought you'd never bring me here. It's fantastic. Thank you so much. Now we're going to whack you on the head with a stick. Thank you so much. This bump on the head, without my reaction to it with violence, is going to demonstrate to all my followers that nonviolence is actually going to be the successful approach to having people who don't need to be here very any longer to now go home. And time and time and time again, he was invited into low behavior. And time and time and time again, he demonstrated the higher behavior. And so then it's for us to take the report of the consciousness state of the so-called other and let that other show the way and rise into. It's like a, if you're a lifeguard and there's someone drowning out there, you're not going to get anywhere by shouting instructions to them. Hey, move your arms like this. You've got to go out there where they are. You go where they are, and then you show them how to swim and bring them in and so on and so forth. But you're not going to be able to stay back here on the beach under your tent, sipping your lemonade, and save their life by shouting out instructions. You know, you, you have to actually go out there. And you have capability. Go out there. It's not going to hurt you. You'll get wet. And when you come in, you'll dry off. And then you'll have another friend for life. So you know, be willing to let your consciousness go to and embrace and interact with whatever the consciousness is out there. And whatever its report is, then Note that report. It's not a report on you. They might say, you're a jerk. You just say, I'm so interested in your point of view. 
how can we make things better? And they might say, well, by you getting out of my way. You say, I'll gladly get out of your way. And I hope we meet again. Because, frankly, I found what you're talking to me about fascinating. I told this story once or twice. I hope it doesn't bore you if I tell it again, but I just have to. I was a surfer once upon a time. I still go out and, like a walrus with my flippers on. and You can see me out there floating around in those giant waves and things. But once upon a time, I actually did that on the surfboard and everything. I was pretty good at it. And probably 15, 20 years ago, I was in Sydney at a cafe at my favorite little cafe. And I was known for going to that place. And I was, I'm a much more known person in Australia than I am here, because I was there for so many years. And three guys accosted me at my table. It was an outside table overlooking the ocean. One of them was the leader of the crew, who it was very important to him to demonstrate his bravado to his two followers, disciples. And he walked up to my table and he said, Oi, aren't you the meditation guy? I said, yeah. He said, I heard that you give talks about fearlessness. Yeah. And he looks over at his devotees to be sure they're paying attention and not getting distracted. And he says, well, would you consider yourself fearless? I said, yeah. He goes, well, if you're fearless, why don't you show us? And I said, I thought to myself, he's just making a mistake. Poor guy. I felt kind of sorry for him. He was, I could feel what was coming. And I said, well, do you have any ideas? He said, yeah, you see that cliff right over there with the waves smashing up against it? Yes. Why don't you go over there, jump off that cliff into the sea, and then swim back here and tell us that was frightening. It was a big sea coming. It was 15-foot waves coming in. And I said, well, because if I did that, then I would be demonstrating that I was afraid of your opinion. And actually, that's not what I'm experiencing. I'd like you to take my invitation and sit down. And he kind of looked at me like, and then he looked over at his two followers and he thought, I'm going to look frightened if I don't. So he did. And he was very frightened, actually. And he sat down wondering what was going to happen next. And I said, why don't you two guys go and get a couple of chairs and bring them up here? And they looked at him as if they needed permission. And he went, and they took off. And they got the chairs and brought them back. And I said to him, uh, what can I get you? There's some juice or something like that. Would you like something to drink? All right. Yes, I'll have something. And I said, what is it? And then I said, let's ask your friends. He said, they don't need anything. And I said to him, if you had a billion-dollar biocomputer and you wanted to demonstrate something, would you take that billion-dollar biocomputer, tie some dental floss on it, and dangle it around off a cliff? Why would you do that? Would that demonstrate something? What would it demonstrate? He said, well, I guess it wouldn't demonstrate anything. I said, well, why is it that you think that jumping off a cliff into some dangerous water is going to demonstrate anything other than fear of the opinion of another. And I said, no, I know you're interested in this subject. You and I need to spend some time together. <laughs> and I'd like to know what you're doing this afternoon. I've got some time between 2 and 3. 
And I can come to you, you can come to me, but we need to have a chat. Because this thing that just happened here, and I said, do you mind me saying this in front of your friends? He goes, maybe you should say it to me privately. I walked him over and I said, it's not working. And you know, you can do much better than this. I want to show you how to really be fearless. So it's not me boasting saying this. I'm trying to demonstrate to you how people's ideas of what fearless means, generally speaking, actually are demonstrations of their fear. Like, watch me, I'm really fearless. But the watch me part's very important. Let's be sure there's plenty of cameras taking pictures of all this, of how fearless I am. Without the cameras, there'd be a tremendous amount of fear. You know, without documentation of the so-called fearlessness, there'd be a lot of fear. But the cameras are there, so now we've got some status. But fearlessness is not what everybody thinks it is. It's the capacity to move frictionlessly and to be able very effectively to interact with any level of demand, to be able to have the appropriate level of response to the demands of the moment. That's what fearlessness demonstrates. No fighting, no fleeing, just interaction, successful interaction. Jay Gurudev, if you're enjoying these podcasts, I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.